0: you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to the book of 2 Samuel. Today we're going to continue our studying, going verse by verse through 2 Samuel, by revisiting what we did not conclude last week. So today we're going to invest some time in 2 Samuel chapter 21, beginning in verse 10. This is God's word, spoken recorded written passed down to us that we might hear it and receive it as the very words of God 2nd Samuel 21 beginning in verse 10 Then Rizpah the daughter of Aiah took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens and she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night when david was told what rizpah the daughter of ayah had the combine of saul had done david went and took the bones of saul and the bones of his son jonathan from the men of yabesh gilead who had stolen them from the public square of bethshan where the philistines had hanged them on the day that the Philistines had killed Saul on Geboah. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin, in Zela, in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea For the land. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we do gather here this morning to remember you. To fill our minds and our hearts with the truth that you have revealed to us. So we ask, O Lord, according to your kindness, according to your grace and mercy, come and meet with us, come and speak to us. Come and make yourself known, testify to Jesus, and have your way with us. We ask you to do this by the righteous life in order to see the mercy that you have for us and the justice poured out on our Christ, our Redeemer, our Messiah. Would you come and make yourself known, testify to the goodness, power, and wisdom of Jesus Christ, in whose image we are being remade all the day long, until we see him face to face in the hour of perfections. Come, O Lord, we ask, in Jesus' name, and all God's people agree. Amen. Amen. I fail. That doesn't sound profound to any of you who know me. It's not even surprising, theologically true. I fail. I've been pastor of this church for almost 16 full years. And I fail. And I have consistently failed in one way, probably more than all others. Brevity. (laughs) Brevity and I are still getting to know each other. It's never going to happen. That's my elder right there. It's never going to happen. Someday I'll be perfect, Dale. It's just not in this life. <laughs> It'll be in the next. The great writing instructor, Roy Peter Clark, said, Brevity comes from selection, not compression. Brevity comes from selection, not compression. That should get tattooed on my hands, because I forget it. In the, in the Victorian era... Writing a letter was an art form. It was an act of literary development. And there was this unattributed quote that I love and is haunted by regularly. It says, I did not have enough time. I apologize for not writing you a shorter letter. Didn't have enough time to write a shorter letter. I think there are weeks that I could have months to prepare, and I would not have enough time to write you a shorter sermon. But as I thought about last week, and I thought about why I loved this text, even though I hated it, and I wanted us to drink deeply of it, though I wanted to spit it out, spit it out in confusion, spit it out in... in, in irreconcilable frustration. How are these things the way that you wanted them to be? How are you glorified here? I was haunted. I was met. Jesus met me in this text. And so I thought we could take the whole thing together. And we couldn't. As often in life, my eyes are bigger than my abilities. My expectations higher than my achievements. Is this all about me? No. No, no. Please don't hear that. Please hear me say, I want to delight in God's word. I don't just want to preach at you. I want to be preached at with you by the text. But sometimes my eyes are too big, my time too limited, my abilities too inadequate. As we come to 2 Samuel 21, this moment of motherly love by Ritzpah, my expectation is that we don't really want to sit here. We want to move on. We want to move out of 2 Samuel. We want to jump back into the New Testament because we want to see Jesus, yes? So the question then becomes... Where is Jesus here? If every page is God's word, if all of it is spoken, if all of it is set apart and holy, if all of it is given to us for our benefit, where is the testimony of Jesus here? Let me sum up for those of you who served in children's church last week or weren't able to tune in or be present What are we talking about? There's this moment that happens in the life and kingdom rule of David. And and we're asking this question, how are we to regard God's kingdom as it exists under David's rule? And at the end of 2 Samuel, we are reaching climaxes. These are not addendums, these are climaxes. But we see this wild, frustrating, difficult event take place. And it's all based on prior history. This is one of the things that makes the Bible feel opaque to us at times. Hard to see, hard to connect, hard to understand. Because some things build off of other things. And if we don't know the first things, we won't understand the second or the fifth the Gibeonites in Joshua 9 tricked Israel into making a covenant with them in God's name. The oath was made by Yahweh's name. And the oath was simply this, we will not kill you. As the people of God are moving into the promised land that God has given, the Gibeonites trick Israel, they deceive Israel. Joshua and the elders of Israel. And Joshua and the elders of Israel did not seek the Lord about what to do with these people. That's the root of all of this difficulty. So they made these covenants with this small sect within the Amorite community. And Saul many years later, as king in Israel, begins killing non-Israelites, including the Gibeonites. And this act shed innocent blood in the land of Israel. And according to Numbers, God warns us That when we do that, when we shed innocent blood, that even the land is affected by the curses poured out in this covenant. Breaking the oath that Saul broke, it besmirches Yahweh's reputation, it turns the people of God into covenant breakers rather than covenant keepers, and it even affects the land. David seeks the Lord at the beginning of this chapter and is given the explicit understanding that the famine, three-year famine that they are experiencing is directly rooted to Saul's breaking of the covenant. And people are dying. Famine is not just a little bit difficult. Prolonged famine without rain There aren't crops. Without crops, there isn't food. You guys like food? Yeah. Most of us have extra food in our homes, yes? If the grocery stores suddenly were destroyed and the supply lines broken and you didn't have any more food to go get, no more restaurants to sit in, your cupboards would begin to be what? Yeah, bear. And after a little while, you would begin asking, Why, O oh Lord? Yes? Well, David asks, finds, the Lord answers, It is the sin of Saul towards the Gibeonites. And David's like, Well, I can't kill Saul. He's dead. So he brings in the Gibeonites and he says to them, How can we atone this? How can we lift the burden of famine upon the community? How do we deal with this broken covenant? And the Gibeonite leaders say, give us seven sons of Saul. Number of perfection. So David hands over seven sons of Saul for execution. And they are executed. And the famine is lifted, we're told, in verse 14. They did all that the king commanded, and after that, God responded to the plea for the land so they could pray and ask for crops and rain. In fact, we're told in verse 11 that when David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones Why is he now satisfied that God is satisfied? Well, let's back up. The seven men are executed and the fruit of that execution is that the covenant has been dealt with. Saul's sin has been atoned for by these seven substitute men. But two of them are a particular woman's sons. These are not indiscriminate people. They're not robots. These are potentially fathers or husbands. We don't know. What we do know is that two of them were sons of a woman named Ritzbah. And that these seven executed corpses remain in public display. These are her boys. So she takes some cloth, lays out a blanket, maybe even wraps their bodies, don't really know. But she beats back the birds of prey from the skies and the predators of the ground so that no one will continue to dishonor those bodies. We get the insight of sleeplessness, right? When you sleep at night, what happens? Doesn't the animal kingdom still win, still thrive, still act? The birds of the air can find meal at night. So here she is, because she loves her sons, beating back. What are we to do with this? How are we to apply a passage like this to our lives? How do we find Jesus here, yes? And most of the time, when we want to find Jesus, as modern-day Western Christians, we want to look at the beautiful and give him credit, yes? I want to see Jesus. I will go to the pretty places amongst the pretty people in Scripture. I will go to the marvelous places, the surprising places. But we have an attachment to that concept, don't we? We will go to the gleefully surprising places. We will not go to the horrifying surprising places. Can you imagine, K-Love right? Positive, encouraging, K-love. Could you imagine them having one gloom-filled song in a day, in a week, in a month? No, 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 That's not the Christianity we want. We don't want to see God in dark places. We want to remember the light and only think about the light and only be enraptured by the beauty and marvel of wondrous, easy, good things. Or is it just me? How do we apply God's word? I think one of the hardest things for us to remember in applying God's word is we have to know it. We have to know what it says. We have to know what it means. We have to do those things long before we can ask the question, what does it mean for me? This is standard inductive Bible study. If Grace Alexander was in the room, I would ask her, is this not representative uh, of the questions we ask in inductive Bible study? She's one of our missionaries, and she ministers over at CNU with InterVarsity. What does it say? What does it mean? What does it mean to me? Where are my Connect kids at? Is this not what we talk about, like, just about every time? What does it say? What does it mean? What does it mean to me? I always want that to be a cheer, right? What does it say? What does it mean? What does it mean to me? Right? You're welcome. How do we apply God's word? We usually use some form of structure, some guided process perhaps, to apply God's word. My favorite and the one I advocate the most is we should always be repenting as we apply God's word. We should be believing as we apply God's word and we should be empowered to walk in new obedience as we apply God's word. Repentance, faith, new obedience. When I say new obedience, I don't mean new to you. I mean new as not coming from you. New obedience is the work of the Holy Spirit producing something in you, compelling and impelling something in you, for you, through you. This new obedience is in the enabling power and ministry of the Holy Spirit giving birth in your life to something new, something found, something missing. We remember, of course, from Acts eleven eighteen, 18, that repentance is granted. Listen to the way Luke describes this. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Repentance is granted. It is a gift of God. This moves us into the doctrines of predestination and election. Yes, yes, hallelujah, yes. Or you can hear it from the pen of the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 2.25. Paul writes, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Well, that stings. How many times do we correct people in our self-righteousness? How gentle is self-righteousness? Yeah, yeah. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. Why do we do so? Because God may perhaps grant these people who are being corrected repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Why are we careful about precision? Because by correction... God's truth is on display, and maybe, just maybe, perhaps, God will use that moment, that thought, that teaching to grant the audience repentance. So we can apply God's word in repentance, we must. Second, we must remember that faith is given. Somebody should name a church on this idea. For by grace you have been saved through, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. It silences all human pride, doesn't it? Trusting God, saving faith, is a gift that God gives by grace, not according to works, not according to sincerity but according to his own mercy. you want to study that, check out Romans 9. Faith itself is given. New obedience, this enabling power and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you a question. On the eve of the crucifixion, Jesus is trying to explain to the disciples as they're gathered together that it is better for them that he goes away. It's better. How many of you, if I had the power, and I don't, to ask Jesus to come and meet with us today, but the Spirit of God would have to go back to heaven? How many of you would be like, I want to be in the presence of Jesus? Holy Spirit, come back in a little while. Jesus tells us plainly, it is better, not for him, not for the redemption plan, but for us, that he would suffer, die, go to glory, and that the Holy Spirit would come and be given in a new profound outworking of the eternal plan of redemption. Many of you think, man, it would just be better if Jesus was here. It would just be better if I could ask him my question and get the answer. How did that work out for most of the people in Jesus' day? How many of them got the answers they were looking for? On any side, sinner or Pharisee. If you really want to learn to apply God's scripture in the area of new obedience, you can ask questions like, What, O oh Lord, do I forsake? Search my life and tell me, What do I forsake? Also, along with that, its partner, What do I embrace? Forsake and embrace. What in this text? teaches me about your nature, your character, the image of Christ that I am being formed into. Lord, you look at my life. Convict me of the sin of not forsaking something and enable me to forsake it. Convict me of the sin of not embracing something that you have for my good, my benefit. What do I forsake? What do I embrace? Sometimes... These efforts of studying the scripture and and using a grid or a formula or a way to think this through can become routine, which is good. Don't you want the good things in your life to be routine? Ordinary, awesome. But sometimes they can become routine emptiness. Emptiness. Or is that just me? Or times where you open your Bible and you pray prayers, you've prayed many times, but you don't really mean them today, the same way you meant them a week ago, a month ago, 10 years ago. So when those moments are happening to my heart, I move to another grid. And I ask the question: what am I to behold? What am I to behold? In this text, behold means look at. What am I to draw my eyes in a deep, prolonged, focused view? What do I behold? And this, of course, speaks to the proverbial or metaphorical sight, right? What do I behold? What do I look at with my eyes? Or I can ask the question, what do I drink deeply here? What, what do I consume and bring into me? Thinking, of course, of the sense of taste. Taste and satisfaction. I use hunger and thirst. These finite elements of our lives, not all of which are sin. Some of our are designed. God's not offended by our finitude. What do I drink deeply of here? So too, I might not just use my eyes or my taste. Sometimes I use my lungs and ask the question, what do I breathe deeply from here? What do I not just ingest, but fill up what's the oxygen of this text pervading and absorbing in through my lungs this is what application of scripture is supposed to do engage us personally individually corporately together did you know when you're reading the new testament most of the you's are plural If you're going to pick a default, do I take this singularly as an individual or plurally as a people? Choose people. And every once in a while, you'll be wrong. But it's once in a great while. The yous are plural. They're uses and we's. But what do I breathe deeply here? And then a caveat, because I'm Presbyterian, I have to do that. Just because the scripture text is for me, that doesn't mean it's about me. Okay? Just because this text is for me, it does not mean that I am its hero or I am its future hero. When we slow down long enough to put ourselves into the story that we are studying in these historical narratives if you find yourself in one. Make sure that you enter this story as an observer. What would it be like to stand there? What would your eyes see? What would your ears hear? What would your heart desire? to believe and understand in those moments. We enter as observers of the story. You will never enter one of these stories and become its central character. So be careful when you study and apply God's word that you don't make yourself the central character. Now, you can use the insights of that central character to evaluate your own life. So if you're in Luke 15 and you're listening to the the cries and complaints of the older brother, you have all permission to ask the question, where in my life am I like the older brother? Not, I'm the older brother. How do I respond, not like the older brother that I am in this story? We're fundamentally making minor mistakes, but those minor mistakes over a long period of time can lead you very, very far astray. You're observing this moment. What would it be like? What would it see, hear, thought, taste, touch? Unless, of course, you're willing to cast yourself as the chief villain. In which case, you have my permission to put yourself in the story. You get me? Repentance, faith, new obedience, using our senses, behold, drink, breathe, taste, touch. Great, great, great. But sometimes, all that still feels like empty routine. That's okay. Let me give you permission, please. When you're studying God's word and you don't have like obvious application, if you don't hear the spirit of God saying, look, touch, taste, drink deep, you don't have to invent it. You can say, thank you, Lord, for your word. May you be at work in my heart and in my mind as I reflect on this throughout the day, the week, the month, the 10 years. It was a passage. I'm not telling you which one because you'll judge me harshly. But when I was in college, there was a passage that was found in three of the gospel narratives long before I knew the word synoptic. Right, Patrick? And I was like, I don't know what that means. But in my pride, because, you know, pride, I didn't ask anybody, what does that mean? And I didn't really know what commentaries were. I was young in my faith. I was studying the Bible pretty much for the first time in my life. But I did not understand what that meant. And it was five years later. I was already in full-time ministry before I understood what that very simple parable in those three gospel stories meant. Is that okay? Is that okay? Are we allowed to live with the uncertainty of not having a clear and convincing answer about what that text means? Yes! Yes, with all my being, yes! Because you are not the sum of one moment. And God is not changing your whole life in terms of progressive sanctification in only one moment. It's a lifetime. Do you understand things now you didn't understand a week ago, a month ago, a year ago, five years, ten years? If you don't, come see me. Because we got to fix your Bible study, right? Sorry, I make babies cry. So we come to this text, and I haven't been in the text much, but we're asking questions about this horror of execution and blood-bought redemption, restitution found in the execution of others. These are complex, difficult, powerful, overwhelming things to study. So here's a question for you as you hold in these passages. Why is this reasonable and understandable to the people in this story? Why is this reasonable and understandable to them and unimaginable to us? What has changed? Because it ain't the human heart. What has changed? between their day and my day, between their understanding and my understanding? What do I know more fully? What do they see dimly? What do they see clearly that the logs in my eyes prevent me from seeing? When I get to questions in moments like that, why is this reasonable and understandable to them and unimaginable to me or us? I then have to find a new structure to to go in because I want to keep pressing in. This is God's word. It's Jesus on every page. Yes, yes, yes. Are we agreed? Because if we can't agree there, none of the rest of this matters. Here's the questions I ask. I'll put these on the realm so you don't have to capture them all. Where is the beauty in this? Where is God awesome here? Is God ever not awesome? It sounds so silly to ask, isn't it? Pastor asked us in church on Sunday, when is God not awesome? How silly is that? How often do the practical realities of your life lead you into a place where you are not thinking about how awesome God is? My dumb question unzips your heart, if you hear it rightly. Where is the beauty? Where is God awesome here? Where is mercy? Where is peace? Where is grace? Where is justice or godliness? Ouch, right? Godliness? No, dude, you were talking about me, peace, mercy, and grace like a second ago. And you go to holiness? No, thank you. Oh, thank you. Where is rebellion and redemption? Redemption? You know that those go together in the Bible? Rebellion and redemption, they go together. Bookending many moments. Where is light in the darkness? Where is hope amidst the grief? Where is comfort in sorrow? Where is love? Where is sacrifice? And then the question you really don't want, but we need so desperately what in here is holy? It's an explosive question. It sounds so docile. What in here is holy? Or you could try, where are you, Lord? If it's your spirit's job to testify about the Son to the human heart through Scripture, then where are you, Lord, Spirit of the risen King? Where is the Lord here? Where do we see you? Where is your goodness? Where is your power? Where is your wisdom? Where is your sovereignty? Where is your righteous judgment? Ouch. Where are you in the execution of seven men who only have in common that they're the grandsons of a villain? Well, that villain was king. And he was responsible to uphold God's law for God's people. The law applied as much to him as any. So what do we make of this text Ritzbah, the daughter of Aya, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until when? I'll read that again and you can find its meaning. Ritzbah, the daughter of Aya, took sackcloth, spread it for herself on the rock, and from the beginning of harvest until rain falls is end of famine. You get this? Rain falls equals life. How many times do you walk out and the rain is inconvenient to you? My wife is like a cat. She does not want to get wet. So she will order things in her day to not get wet in rain. How ridiculous a society do we have that she can do that? Boots, jacket, the whole deal. If you are a Hebrew in this moment, dancing in the puddles is not high enough to express the joy that they have in that moment. It is life, it is oxygen to the soil. You understand what I'm saying? The rain fell, the rain fell. The famine is lifted and it fell upon them from the heavens. She did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. The rain falls at harvest. The famine is over. But the bodies remain on display. Is there atonement or isn't there? God says there is. The rain fell. Why are the bodies left? Why is she having to beat back by sky and land those who would devour the bodies of those executed? Well, we find out, verse 12, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Gabayash Gilead who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan where the Philistines had hanged them. Remember, Saul and Jonathan... Received the same thing these men received, but it was for a different purpose. So what does David do? David goes and takes Saul's bones, Jonathan's bones, and the bodies of the seven men who were executed, and he brings them up together. And he buries the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin. In Zela, in the tomb of Kish, his father, they are placed in honor in their family tombs. David hears the testimony of this unimaginable mother's love. God loves you more than she loves her sons. And if you're not willing to enter into the passage and observe her, and see the sacrifice, see the devastation, feel the emotions that she is likely feeling, and then exhausting them by time, by adding to them sleeplessness, you will not understand what I mean when I say God loves you more than she loves her sons because God chose to be one of her sons. Are you with me? Are you really with me? God becomes the sacrifice of atonement. Guilt is hard for us to read about in the Bible until we realize that guilt can always be atoned for. Sin and failure are hard for us to see because we see it in Israel, we see it in our own lives if we look carefully, if we study well. But that's good news because as bad as the bad news is, the good news of the gospel is far greater. So every time you take a look at sin, take 10 looks at Christ. Every time you see guilt in God's word, remember that his grace comes in the face of guilt and gives mercy, shows love, atones for the sacrifice. David, as an act of tribute, gathers the bones of Saul, the bones of Jonathan, and he gave them an honorable burial in their home territory of Benjamin. Jesus gets a borrowed Tomb. A borrowed tomb. If you want to understand the events of Gilboa, you must study the events of Golgotha. Golgotha. Calvary. Think about the cross. Think about the deep sacrificial love that God displays. What is happening here is Ritzbah is pointing to the extravagant but costly way of love, that Hesed way. Ritzbah is showing it. So how does King David respond to this story? That's a great application question. If we see how David applies this moment, then it gives us an insight into how we might apply this moment. How does he apply this powerful story? He honors the memory of the cursed men by bringing them together in the land that the Lord had promised them and imaging the union they have with their tribe. Can, can you see the lines yet? Can, can you see the cross yet? It's there. The atonement is here pictured as David honors the memory of the cursed men. Do this in remembrance of me. Did you catch it? David honors the memory of the cursed men. Do this in remembrance of me. By burying them together in the land the Lord had promised. It images union. Well, when we behold the death of Jesus Christ, is not that a giant declaration of the spiritual truth that we are in Christ? Why does Jesus die if not for us? And we remember and honor the sacrifice that unites us to God. How do we apply this text? Well, in repentance... I would ask the question, do I love people beyond the level of inconvenience? Lord, forgive me that there are too many times I don't, I don't sacrifice beyond the level of mere inconvenience. Do I sacrifice to the point of true costliness? It costs that mother everything to protect those bodies? Do I love the living as much and as costly as she loves the dead? Forgive me, Lord, I do not. I might apply this passage in faith. Lord, teach me to trust and believe that you have turned away your wrath from me. The story of the execution of these seven men is the doctrine of propitiation. It is. The wrath that belongs to the land, to the people, to the tribes, is paid for in the blood sacrifice of seven surrogates, seven substitutes. That's the doctrine of the atonement right there. And God turning away his anger This is what Jesus does on the cross for us. He stands in the way of the wrath that is destined rightly for us. And he turns it away that it would land on him and not on us. So in faith, Lord, teach me to trust and believe that you have turned away your father's wrath from me. How free would you be if you were not worried that God was going to dump on you that day. Or that the circumstances of your life are not his dumping on you for some reason. Or third. New obedience. By the ministry and power of the Holy Spirit. Lord enable me to be a man who lays down his life for his friends. Notice. Notice. One, two, and three follow similar themes, yes? They don't have to, but they certainly do here. So what do we do? Well, we turn our attention now to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And in the same way, in seeking the Scripture, we sought to to see with our eyes, to hear with our ears, to breathe with our lungs, to taste with our tongues. So too, the Lord gives us Sensible sign, not just sensible like common sense, but sensible, taste, touch, sight, using our senses to declare to us what? Do this in remembrance of me. We remember and proclaim his death. For how long? Until he comes, yes? Until he comes, yes? The Lord is coming, and he's coming to take us to a place we do not deserve to be. But we are given citizenship in heaven by the mercy and means of the Holy Spirit in applying to us the life, death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus Christ. Our union with him is what's on display in this sensible sign. That's why we call it a sacrament. The Lord instituted it for our senses that we would taste and see, touch, and know that he is God. So we use our senses to remember and to honor his death. And we use our minds and our hearts to remember and honor his death. Why? Because the Lord's Supper declares Jesus has turned away all wrath. Jesus has turned away all wrath. Jesus on the cross drinks deeply from the cup of wrath, emptying every last drop that we might drink from his cup of eternal life to the very very last drop amen please pray with me heavenly father we understand that covenant breaking is so ugly we understand that the horrors of this moment are unimaginable to most of us most of us do not have nightmares vivid enough to explain the ghastliness of this blood sacrifice And so too, our imaginations are not good enough yet that we can imagine the truly holy, the truly perfect. We do not have imaginations yet that can plumb the depths or seek the heights of your mercy towards us. So come God and be merciful to us, sinners. And all God's people agree.